0: (laughs) Uh, We forgot how to do this.
1: Hey, Prog fans, welcome to another episode of the Ultimate Prog Podcast Project. My name is Tony, and as always, I'm joined by Lee and Craig. We are three friends and prog aficionados here to talk about the history and the craft of progressive music while sprinkling in our always unvarnished opinions of the music and the personalities that make this genre so great. You can find us on Twitter at UP3Show or contact us via email at UP3Show at gmail.com. If you just can't get enough of the show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on our homepage at up3show.podbean.com or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. We're on most of the major podcast platforms. This makes sure that you never miss an episode and helps other Prog fans find our show.
2: We're back.
3: Yay. I know. Wait, what about follow us on Twitter? I did
1: say follow us on Twitter. Oh,
0: you did? Man, your memory is getting short. It was just like 10 seconds ago. You
1: know, it has been a while since we sat down and done this. Maybe we're shaking off a little bit of rust. So I guess I'll start with you tonight, um, Craig. So what have you been up to on our hiatus?
3: I uh, didn't really do much of anything. Um, I'm getting a garage. That's the most amazing thing going on right now. So I have a big hole in my backyard. I live in a hundred year old house and all the houses on our block were built with like Model T garages. Everybody, whenever they get around to it, knocks it down and puts a real garage in. So that's what I'm doing.
1: Cool. Like, nice. He's out
3: of town, so I'm dealing with contractors and dog sitting and babysitting, and and the laundry doesn't get done. It's weird.
1: You know, there's a machine for that.
0: I, yeah, I know. Well, yeah. Uh, yes, that's pretty much it.
1: Okay. What about you, Lee? What have you been up to over hiatus?
0: Just getting out and doing a lot of hiking and fishing, and started working on a new tune. So, been writing in the studio a bit. This one is a. Kind of a lengthy prog song, so. Nice. Yeah.
3: Will you ever play any of your prog songs on our show? Sure.
0: I'll be glad to play my prog song on here, but give me a couple of episodes. This one's a little lengthier. It's going to take a while.
1: So did you sit down to write a prog song or did you just sit down to write and it turned into a prog song?
0: This one has been in my head for a while. I've sort of jotted down ideas in a little audio recorder that I keep in the car. Mm-hmm. I was coming back from a fishing trip and listening through the tape, and I thought, there's enough here to get started. So
3: so what does that look like? You're driving along and spacing out, and your brain, you go, dun, 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 and you're like, oh, that's cool. I'm going
0: to do that. Yeah, exactly. I've got a little portable Olympus recorder that I keep in the car. It stores on SD cards, and I'll just turn it on and go, doo, 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 doo. oh, wait, that's Zappa.
3: That's, that I was going to say, that's, uh, that's, copyright that's, yellow, infringement. that's yellow snow, man.
1: I think we get nine notes. <laughs> yeah, I don't carry around like a notebook, like a lot of people that do literary stuff do. So I started using the voice recorder on my phone. So I just have a little app that's like in my shortcuts. And if I have like a piece of dialogue or a scene description come to mind, I'll just like pick that up and talk into it. So, yeah.
0: There you go. How about you, Tony? What have you been doing?
1: A bunch of different stuff. I took some of the time and I got back into some big Lego projects I wanted to do just to have my brain do something completely different. Uh, My wife and I started playing a big role-playing campaign that I've got some friends that I play in, and it's it's a lot of fun. Uh, I did some more research and prototyping on my solid-state Mellotron, which incidentally came out of, I got to go to a concert for real with people, and I went with Craig I was supposed to go with you, Lee, but I think you were sick, so so that wasn't no good. But Craig and I had a really great conversation that night, and it spurred some ideas in my head, and so then I started working on my Mellotron again. And then, you know, something that neither of you mentioned that I have photographic evidence of? We had an in-person show meeting.
0: We did.
3: Oh, that was awesome.
0: It was great.
1: And... We have now a fourth member of the show cast, my dog, Finn, who yep. decided that he wanted to photobomb our photos that we were taking. So, yeah, I mean, I just did a a fair amount of that kind of stuff over the summer. Uh, and now I am back with you guys and ready to get at it. Sweet. It's yep. fun to be back. I know. It is. So, as we normally do as we get into an episode, we like to go around the horn and do like news and new albums and stuff like that. And we haven't been talking for a couple of months. So, we probably have a lot more than normal. Uh, so, we'll just kind of take turns here. I'll start and I want to give a shout out to a local Colorado band. They're up in Fort Collins. They're called Lion Tortoise. They have a new album called Sister coming out on the 3rd of September. They are an instrumental Prague band. They even acknowledge on their website they're maybe not straight ahead Prague, but they are definitely. really great band and i encourage everyone to check them out again their name is lion tortoise all one word and then i gotta say be still my beating heart lepris has a new album aphelion coming out 27th of august i was a part of their live stream playing the new record in its entirety it is fabulous so if you are a fan of lepris and even if you're not i think you should check it out most of the reviews so far early have been really good And Deck Burke, who we did an interview with back in the spring, has a new album, Life in Two Dimensions, coming out on the 24th of September. From what I have heard of it, um, both privately and online, it is going to be a great record. So I highly encourage everyone to check that out. The title
0: track is available on Spotify, and I really like it.
1: Yeah, a lot of really great folks on that one.
0: Yep, and recording quality on this is just like next level for this. So really looking forward to that album.
1: So what else do you guys have? New Dream Theater.
0: That's the big one for me. Uh, View from the top of the world. That'll be out October 22nd. They previewed a single, The Alien, which is out now. Marillion has announced a tour beginning in November. The light at the end of the tunnel. So far, all of that is UK dates. Unfortunately, they did announce they will have some new songs debuting. So that's cool. Transatlantic is going to tour. For 2022, and that's got US states in it, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. And we will see them on Cruise to the Edge. Neil Morse band has got a new album coming out called Innocence and Danger, and that is releasing on Friday. I read an interview with Portnoy where he said this album was less concept and just more collection of songs. So I'll probably jump on that. Really want to hear more, Eric Gillette. Kairos has a new album coming out called Recover. It's a collection of covers of other bands' songs, which typically doesn't excite me that much. But they are including their versions of The Good Doctor from Haken and Heartstrings by Frost. And they are guesting with Ray Hearn and John Mitchell, respectively. And so I probably will pick that up just because I really like what Kairos is doing.
1: That's like a trifecta of things that you enjoy right there. Uh,
0: Absolutely. The Pineapple Thief... They have announced a touring calendar for May, and it includes Boulder, so I will be there. And finally, new Earthside is coming out. They released a single called All We Knew and Ever Loved, which I am very impressed with. I have literally been waiting years for this band to get a new contract, and I am super excited they finally landed one. Their debut album, Dream and Static, is one of my favorites. So there you go. I'm all caught up.
1: Do you have anything, Craig?
0: Yeah, uh,
3: yeah, I did find the uh, Jethro Tell stuff. A is available for um, pre-release now, and uh, it's a Steve Wilson remix. And uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that.
0: I love that album.
3: I was going to say, it's a great album. It's, it's, Eddie Jobson. Yeah, it's, it's less folky, more proggy, maybe. Uh, another thing that I'm very curious about, Tony, you talk about a band called Coheed and Cambria. Mm-hmm. They're coming to an outdoor venue in Denver next week. Really? Yes. We got to go. I'm thinking of going.
1: That sounds awesome.
3: Uh, that's it. So coheating Cambria.
1: You said yes, Craig. So yes, also has an album coming out on the 1st of October called The Quest. And I want to know what your all's thoughts of this version of yes, releasing this album.
3: Who's left on it? No, that was me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think we'll leave it at that. Um, as we as we start to transition into the show, one, maybe one thing from each of you guys. What have you been listening to recently?
3: I have been listening to as much Lonely Robot as I possibly can. Good choice. The reason is, John Mitchell, besides being a great songwriter, I love his guitar playing, and I'm, I'm really in this jazz piano learning how to solo, and so I'm, I've been studying different people's solo techniques, and John Mitchell's guitar solos are kind of like David Gilmore guitar solos yeah. in my brain. Not a lot of notes, but it's the right notes, and the tone's great, and it's lyrical, and it's tasty, and boy, I can't get enough, so
0: I've just been immersing myself in that.
1: Very cool. What about you, Lee? What have you been really grooving to recently?
0: I am listening to a metal band out of Ukraine called Ginger, J-I-N-J-E-R. They are half prog rock, half prog metal, and they kind of move in and out very seamlessly. They have a new album coming out called vortex and i am thoroughly impressed with this vocalist i'm going to butcher her name so i'm only going to say it's tatiana and she does this moving seamlessly in and out of clean vocals and growl vocals they've been a band since 2010 and so i'm having to do a lot of heavy catch-up right now so a lot with ginger for me
1: awesome I have actually been back in my metal roots exploring them a lot. Incidentally, listening to a lot of Coheed and Cambria recently, um, more on the metal side of them, but also like older stuff like Alice in Chains, uh, Nine Inch Nails, Leaf Eyes, Godhead, stuff like that. When we were texting the other day, Lee, and you were so excited about Ginger, there's a whole lot more once you start peeling this back. And I'm like super excited for you to like go down this rabbit hole because there's a lot of other vocalists like her, and I can't wait for you to discover them. So, oh. I
3: also want to give a shout-out to a listener named Kirk Herron. Kirk, how's it going, man? Uh, He sent us a nice email, uh, very complimentary, and he's working on a project called the Aspirations Gentle Giant Documentary. Um, So look that up.
0: It's on Spotify. We can add a link in the show notes, too.
1: That's awesome. So without further ado, let's go talk about Frank Zappa. Tonight, guys, we are starting... Episode one of season two here. And we have a topic that I am very interested in hearing you guys talk about because I will be very honest, I've never really been into Zappa. So I'm really looking forward to you guys bringing up the young guy as to why I should care about Frank Zappa.
0: Zappa's a huge influence for me. I think I told everybody in season one, episode one, that Zappa was my gateway into prog music. I think he's a huge influence on the genre. He was doing alternative music in 66 with his first album freak out and that's before yes genesis elp or king crimson he's kind of the godfather of a lot of the progressive music that i listen to he was
3: not my gateway into prog music he was my gateway into just weirdness because i was you know 15 and somebody turned me on to yellow snow i was listening to a george carlin class clown seven words you can't say on television at that exact same time. And between those two things, it just introduced me just into this weirdness of culture that I never realized existed and that I could be a part of
0: even at that young age. Yeah. My experience is very similar. Holy crap. I had no idea any of this kind of weird music or lyrics was even out there. And it just completely sucked me in.
3: Yellow snow was, aside from saying Yellow Snow, because that's, you know, funny and juvenile, and I was juvenile, so it made sense, but it's not really a song, (laughs) structure-wise. There's no chorus, verse, it's just a story that's kind of wrapped, but it's so unconventional compared to everything else that was out at the time, and for me, that was like 72, 73.
1: As me playing the Neophyte foil for you guys, given what we talked about here, uh, not trying to do this like chronological history of Zappa, but bring people into Zappa. When I talk to people like you guys in the intro, when we were warming up, there's just this experience of talking to Zappa fans. It's a very rabid fan base and it's a very different kind of feel. Why do you think people revere Zappa so much? Like, what is it that like grabs people and takes hold of their soul the way that it does?
3: No, I think there's a combination of you know, stuff that we've talked about time and place. A lot of us old guys, like you say, revere Frank Zappa, because he was doing such unique stuff and such great music at formative times in our lives. His music has withstood the test of time. It just satisfies a lot of what us old Prague guys like
0: in music. Most of the musicians that I respected in this time period went through Zappa's bands Eddie Jobson, Terry Baggio, Steve Vai, George Duke, uh, the Brecker Brothers, John Luke Ponte. Ponte, Adrian um, Ballou. Yeah, I mean, it goes on and on and on. A lot of the musicians that I respected came to the Zappa band. To me, it was almost a proving ground. If you went through Zappa, you knew that that was going to be
3: somebody to look out for you if you hadn't heard of them before. Like the Brecker Brothers, I'd never heard of them before, and I happened to pick up a cd it's like oh well they played with zappa and it's a great album
1: yeah so can you give us a little bit of background especially me as a zappa naive person how did everything kind of get started freak out
0: his first album comes out in 66 was kind of proggy but it was like so much
3: more it really pushed a lot of boundaries in every kind of direction it seemed like there were some prog aspects there were some jazz aspects there were some avant-garde aspects
0: I think it really resembles a lot more of sort of a psychedelic album than anything. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sure. I agree. And it really makes sense if you look at the period because Iron Butterfly and de DeVita, Pink Floyd, Saucer Full of Secrets, Sgt. Pepper's, that's all around the same time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's certainly alternative, but it doesn't really grow into what I would call sort of standard Zappa until you get to Lumpy Gravy. Sure. Sure. Which is 68.
3: There's a Ruth Underwood passage in. The Alex Winter movie where she's talking about what Zappa and, and I guess it was the Mothers, I think, were doing in New York at the time, which was just really experimental stuff. And then Freak Out became a record, and I think it was just kind of representative of some of that. My favorite Zappa stuff is his like super proggy, kind of fusion-y stuff. Yeah. That's the
0: stuff that I like. Yeah, I think it makes more sense to talk about Zappa, just in terms of what we like. The discography... Is just insane, 119 albums released, 62 while he was alive, 57 posthumously. We would be here for all of season two just trying to do a history of Frank Zappa. And so many other people have done a much better job. We both really like the Alex Winter documentary, if you're into a history of Zappa. What we'd really like to do tonight instead is to chop Zappa's catalog up into four or five different categories for listeners that would like to dive a little deeper into Zappa.
1: The first big bucket that we had identified was this kind of, quote-unquote, comical Zappa. Right. And what really was that?
0: Comical Zappa, satirical Zappa, whatever you want to call it, that's really what Zappa is probably most well-known for to the man on the street. 95% of these songs have really biting lyrical content. It was often a commentary about religion or society or the establishment or the music business. But also quite a bit of sexual content in here, too. Fetishes, bondage, S&M. We'll just dive right into the deep end. This is Bobby Brown Goes Down from the album Shake Your Booty. Ready. She made a little speech
2: then All oh, she tried to make me say when She had my balls in a vice, but she left the dick I guess it's still hooked on, but now it shoots too quick Oh God, I am the American dream
3: now I smell like
2: Bazeline, and I'm a miserable son of a bitch. Am I a boy or a lady? I don't
0: know which. I think you got your point across. No, It, it, you it does get the point across. I actually found <laughs> that on a, a jukebox in a burger bar one day and I played it over and over and over until they kicked me out. <laughs> so there's any number of songs in this genre that, that are similar. Here's one called Flakes.
2: more on and this is my wife she's busting a cage with a paper knife all what we got here's American made it's a little bit cheesy
3: but it's nicely displayed Well we don't get excited when it crumbles and breaks we just get on the phone and call up some
0: plates So the commonality for these is going to be... Really biting commentary on something in society, or maybe just a very heavy sexual song. In general, the melodies and the music in these songs is not going to be super complex. The humorous Zappa, the comical Zappa, not all of
3: it was raunchy. Um, some of it, And a lot of it got airplay. Mm-hmm. What was the song that he did with Moon? Uh, Valley Girl. Yeah, Valley Girl got play. Yep. Uh, Jewish Princess got
0: play. Yeah, that's a great point. And some of these are just long stories that are kind of non-sequitur. Let's play Don't Eat the Yellow Snow from Apostrophe. Oh, well, I turned around and I said, oh, oh, well, I turned around and I said, oh, oh, and the northern lights commenced to glow. And she said, oh, oh, with a
3: tear in her eye.
2: Watch out where the huskies go, don't you eat that yellow snow. Watch out where the
0: huskies go, don't you eat that yellow snow. Uh, Still juvenile,
1: but I love it. So I gotta ask, in 2021, listeners of this episode and people that are hearing some of these samples, so there's obviously these references to sex and sexuality and things like that, and I'm just interested in what you guys think about that, about like, where is that line with Zappa? Do people give Zappa a special pass because Zappa's Zappa, or and does he get held to a different standard kind of thing?
0: A lot of his commentary was about the music business, about government, about religion. Mm-hmm. And I think all of that holds up today, just like it did then. Mm-hmm. The sexual stuff, maybe it doesn't. I mean, I, I think if Zappa were alive, he'd be turning the crank up to 11 on it just to see what he could get away with.
1: So he was a provocateur in that way.
0: Oh, very much. He was neck deep in the whole, you
3: know, rating of lyrics thing. Yes. Back in the 80s. I think it was 86, maybe.
1: Yeah, I watched it really great and I, I encouraged the audience. He debated Tipper Gore on national TV about this. And I encourage people to go. Uh-huh. That, that entire um, debate and interview is available on YouTube.
3: He was also on Crossfire and that's on archive.org. And he held his own, man. The press guys look like morons.
1: Yes. I want to
0: emphasize that. The music can also be very comical just by itself. Um, It doesn't have to be just the lyrics. And when you start talking about what a great composer he is, I want to play one more called I Am the Slime. little electric piano line in there for me it harkens back to the looney tunes cartoons where the orchestra would play music to convey comedy and i think it shows his range as a composer Mm -hmm. Zappa was adept at not just satirical lyrics Mm -hmm. but also comical music as well that little clip that you just played
3: at the very beginning if you really pay attention to what's going on there's a horn section. Mm-hmm. There's organs. There's bass drums, keyboards, guitar. That is a massively orchestrated little chunk of music there. Yes, and that's uh, that's overnight sensation. So that's what seventy five, seventy right. six, sort of quote unquote early in his career, and he was doing that kind of stuff. And it was written. I mean, he wrote that stuff down on paper and gave it to his people to play.
1: This style or this uh, subgenre of Zappa, like the comical, whatever we want to call that. Was that only in this period of time or did those things show up throughout his career?
0: It was pervasive. Yeah. Very pervasive. And it influenced a lot of people.
1: Yeah, we hear that a lot. Like when we look at the contemporary Prague musicians that I respect almost to a T, all of them list Zappa as at least one of their influences. And so that's an interesting connective tissue there. Yes. I don't want to harbor on this too long, but you know, in the early era when Zappa was starting, obviously it's the counterculture drug culture of America. How much of that was part of this? I mean, obviously, I expect that he probably was involved in that community, but was that like directly influencing the music?
3: No, he was very uh, decidedly not a drug. That's right. Um, he lived in Laurel Canyon, and uh, he was like the one that was not
1: having big drug parties. So he was high on life.
3: He was high on life, and he was a sex nut, though. That was That's like another sort of piece of his personality. Um, he was all about sex, rock and roll, and not
0: drugs. If you're asking, was this kind of music on while I was getting stoned and high? Absolutely. Oh, dude.
1: Well, I wasn't going there, but that's a really great...
0: <laughs> but it was more just, listen to this, you won't believe it. That's an interesting thing, though, that I never really
3: thought about. We were stoners in the 70s, really enjoying Frank Zappa. And you sort of feel like, oh, man, he's talking to me. You know, I'm doing acid, and this song is just perfect. And that's not what he was thinking. No.
1: No. So we've talked in this little segment about the sexual overtones in a lot of this music. You know, when I was a teen, this was never my, my jam, but a lot of the people, especially girls that I grew up with, really loved Prince and the overt sexuality of Prince. Even though I didn't like it, Prince has always felt like he was mainstream, always. It doesn't feel to me like Zappa was always mainstream, like Zappa grew into that, and I'm wondering if There's any kind of comparison you guys want to make to how, like, Prince and that content in his music was received versus what Zappa's was?
0: No, that comparison doesn't really ring true for me. Yeah, Yeah, I don't really feel like Zappa was ever mainstream. And I'm not exactly a Prince expert, but I always got the feeling with Prince's music that the sexuality was more about being sexy, and that's certainly not Zappa. He was using sex in lyrics more as a commentary or even just a shock value. For the most part, Zappa was not commercial. Gotcha. Strictly commercial.
1: So now I'd like to segue then into what I'm really excited about here um, is this uh, virtuoso nature of Zappa and and his playing style and stuff like that because, you know, Last season when we did the Steve Morris episode, I had a lot of strong opinions and they changed radically when I started analyzing it. I'm really interested for you guys to take me down the rapid hole about Zappa's virtuosity here.
0: So I think you can divide the virtuosity into two buckets. The first is just what I would call a straight-ahead blues band, where the band is playing a pretty straight-ahead comp line underneath a whole lot of soloing. No vocals. It's got a very jazzy or very blues feel. People underneath, like the bass, might be doing some interesting walking lines. But overall, this is really pretty simple and straightforward. It's just a vehicle for a guitar solo, a sax solo, something like that. Here's an example. This is a song called Black Napkins from the album Zoot Allures.
3: Ah, uh, when I saw him and he did uh, black napkins, it was a frickin twenty minute jam, and it just was amazing.
2: Yeah.
0: you know, and he keeps it moving. just a wonderful improviser. It's interesting. I read an interview with Tom Fowler when he was auditioning for Zappa that said he thought he was auditioning primarily for a blues band, where it'd be a lot of comping on the rhythm line and soloing on top. Frank Zappa has a pretty
3: unique playing style, and he puts a huge emphasis both with him and the people in his band on improvisation. Yes. He's always trying to push the band in different directions. So from night to night, you know, they would do a show and then he would write new parts based on the improvs that were done on the previous night. So this is watermelon and Easter. hay, and it's notable, I think because, um, there's a version of it online that Dweezil plays. It was like Frank Zappa's birthday or something. And Frank was not necessarily a particularly present parent what, with those 14 hour days in the studio, but Dweezel apparently has memories of dad playing that song for him and spending time with him. And he, so he plays that song, Dweezel does, and, uh, you know, he kind of chokes up. It's uh, and it's, it's a great song. her. just a great guitar player and heavy emphasis on improvisation and his improvs are all wonderful
1: yeah that was lovely
0: and then as a transition we'll do one more this is a song called the purple lagoon i oh, love that and it's killer for me because it starts with a fretless bass solo that eventually transitions into a pretty intricate horn section So we spent some time covering that bluesy, lots of soloing feel. Now we're going to get into some very intricate, very complex music. Very heavy prog, in my opinion. We'll start with a song called The Black Page Number 1. And many of the musicians that came through Zappa's band consider this one of the hardest pieces they ever had to play. Very avant-garde, Yeah, a lot of really unusual time signatures, and what's interesting about a lot of this style of writing with Zappa is it doesn't even have to be complex time signatures. A lot of it is common time, but it's tuplets hidden inside quarter notes, and tuplets even inside other tuplets, and here's an example of that. This is a song called Montana from Overnight Sensation. vocals, the women singing there, that's Tina Turner and the ICATS. Oh, wow. No, she, I had no Holy idea. Moly. And there's a very famous story that Ike had no idea what Zappa's music was about. And when Tina came home and told him all these lyrics they were singing, like, for Dynamo Hum in Montana, he just lost his shit. <laughs> um, one thing I'll point out that I know Craig loves this as much as I do is that's xylophone doubling vocals. And they're nailing mm-hmm. it and they do it live. Ruth Underwood is a great xylophonist. And Zappa really liked a lot of xylophone. There's a lot of xylophone in these pieces. Yeah, his instrumentation was unique.
1: There's a lot of interesting choices of which instrument voices are going to show up.
3: Mm-hmm. I agree with that. One of the cool things about that little bit that you just played, Lee, is, yeah, it's got all the tuplets and all the nasty stuff, but if you listen to the, just listen to the bass line, it's pretty straight ahead, and it's really kind of holding it together.
0: And musically, it's just
3: composed really nicely.
0: Yep. And it was written down in sheet music. It wasn't ad-libbed. And Zappa expected the musicians to keep up. And a lot mm-hmm. of times he would stand in the middle of the stage and conduct. Oh, dude, that was so cool to see live.
1: Wow. That that would actually be a very interesting experience. I'm. I mean, it's a shame I never will get to experience that.
3: The act of him, you know, during an improvisational section... Conducting the band, definitely recommended viewing.
0: And then I also want to play G Spot Tornado.
3: Yeah, so G Spot Tornado, uh, that's on an album, Jazz from Hell. And the whole deal with Jazz from Hell, I think I remember Frank Zappa saying this in an interview. You know, he would write music for his band to play, and he knew his band was virtuosos, but he also knew that his band had limits. And he wanted to be able to just write music that it didn't matter that anybody was able to play or not. And that's where writing jazz from hell for the sinclovir came on came from and this song from that is called g-spot tornado
0: And by the way, that's a great title, G-Spot Tornado. That just kind of says it all right away.
1: <laughs> that was an amazing track.
0: It is a good track.
1: You know, pivoting just a little bit, you've mentioned some of the people that have come through the band so far. Um, can, who Who were some of the names that we would really know? And, and yeah. like, did they stand out like on a particular album or a particular track? They were kind of maybe a journeyman musician, and then they did something with Zappa, and then that escalated them.
0: Here's a good example of what you're talking about. George Duke, very famous pianist. He'd already done a couple of albums, I believe with John McPonty, but then was asked to join Zappa's band and stayed with the mothers for several albums. And Frank really pushed him way beyond just playing piano into synthesizers and even singing. This is George Duke singing on the song Inca Roads" from One Size Fits All. What?
3: That's a beautiful voice. I just want to go on record. That's my favorite Frank Zappa song. Oh, right there.
0: cool. I love that song. There's a huge list of people that went through Zappa bands that I picked up and listened to. Ruth Underwood on Xylophone, Ian Underwood on Keys, George Duke. Ainsley Dunbar was a drummer for a while. Terry Baggio was his drummer for a while. Scott Thunes on bass. Roy Estrada. God, Roy Estrada. Um, great bassist. And then, like we were saying, the Brecker brothers for um, on brass and bass and Lowell George. Lowell George. I was going to say Lowell George was in the band. Lowell for a George while. from Little Feet was in the band for a while. Um, Mike Keneally was in the band. Steve Vai was in the band. Eddie Jobson, Jean Luc Ponty did violin. Don't forget about Adrian. Adrian Blue was in there. That's right. But literally, hundreds of famous musicians went through Zappa bands. The list on Wikipedia of musicians from his bands is multiple pages long
1: coming into the Zappa band, was that kind of a rite of passage for some of these people? Did that change the fortunes for some of these musicians? They were kind of like a journeyman. But then after being with Zappa for a while, they had established their own star.
3: Yeah, probably if you got into Zappa's band, you had a huge amount of street cred. Yes. I mean, for instance, after Adrian Blue was in there for an album or two, I know he was in Shake Your Booty. I'm not sure if he was in any after that. Um, David Bowie recruited him to join his traveling band and I don't even know that he had an audition at that point whereas he had to audition for Zappa twice because he
0: loved the first one apparently mm. and there were meetings that spun off other bands Terry and Dale Baggio meet while working with Zappa and eventually form Missing Persons UK with Eddie Jobson and Terry Baggio the Brecker brothers really got themselves elevated by playing in Zappa bands uh, Ruth and Ian Underwood people like that I don't know that Ruth Underwood would have ever gotten noticed as a xylophonist without being in Zappa bands. How many other xylophonists can you name? (laughs) There's people like Steve Vai that are going to go on, obviously, to be these incredible guitarists, but he joined Zappa's band, I think, when he was 18. Wow. There's an argument you can make that, you know, joining Zappa's band really pushed him out in the forefront. Seriously.
1: Yeah, and I like what you were saying about Ruth Underwood as a xylophone player getting noticed. You know, there aren't really that many rock (laughs) uh, genre xylophone players, right? There are similar instruments. And so it it puts a spotlight on someone like that versus like if I was maybe doing a rock band and I needed a xylophone, I would probably go down like to the local community college or something. Here you get someone who's established as like, oh, I can play xylophone in a rock band.
3: Right. And it's front and center. Mm -hmm. Unless it's, you know, straight ahead jazz. You know, usually xylophones or marimbas are down in the mix just to give it a flair, like think of Born to Run. Mm -hmm. There's a xylophone in there, but it's playing five notes.
0: There's a great interview that George Duke did when he first got the gig, and they were going to rehearsals. And one of the first things that Frank had him do was just this, like, two or three chord rhythm line just over and over, this little comp line that you can kind of play in your sleep. And George went up to him and said, Frank, I can't play this. And Frank was like, why, your hands are broken? No, Frank, I just can't play this. You know, I just came out of conservatory. And Frank was like, oh, you mean it's beneath you to play that? (laughs) He would really force a lot of these musicians to like, no, this is actually what we're playing right now. This is what fits this part perfectly. Sometimes it's about you as a virtuoso, and other times it's about being part of the band. Mm
1: -hmm. Oh, that's a really great point. I like that. It also speaks to the vision that obviously Frank had when he was composing pieces, especially what Craig was saying earlier about how he would construct pieces out of samples of other things. Yes. He knew what he wanted, and he knew what it was going to take to get there, and nothing was really going to get in his way of getting there.
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. You know, in hindsight, we look at these, and we know they're great names already, but people like Tom Fowler and Bruce Fowler, Ansley Dunbar, Roy Estrada. I think Roy Estrada definitely made his name being in the Zappa band. People like that, Jimmy Williams, all those. Who was the trombone player? Was that Tom Fowler? Trombone was Bruce Fowler.
3: Yeah, slide trombone. Yeah. You know, what other band is going to have a five or ten minute trombone, trombone solo, solo and it be just freaking tasty as hell? That's right.
1: You know, you got to love that. That's awesome. And I really particularly like how this band was a catalyst for so much without naming my favorite prog band again, even when I was a teenager, ahead, my, do my it, favorite.
0: Do it. Do it. Do it. Because we aren't real clear who that is. Uh,
1: yeah, exactly. If if you're just tuning in, expect a lot of Arian. <laughs> I mean,
0: can, um,
1: so, you know, like that's always been one of my favorite things is looking at a band that I really enjoy, especially uh, a band where there's a rotating cast of performers mm-hmm. and starting to pull on those threads of like, Oh, okay. So those two guys were on this record together and they went off and did this other side thing. Let me go listen to that side thing and then like pull on that thread. And like, yeah, that I mean, that's, yeah, as I said in our very first episode, that's how I got into Prague because yep. it was pulling on that thread.
3: You know, it's an interesting contrast. This just popped into my head. If you think about Steely Dan, mm-hmm. Becker and Fagan were sort of like the Frank Zappa where they knew what they wanted and they pulled in whatever musicians they could. But the difference is they didn't really plug the musicians, and the musicians that they pulled in were all studio guys and all established.
0: Yeah, session musicians.
3: Frank took a completely different approach. He was building a band, and Steely Dan just was creating music that they heard and was less about a band or less about touring or something.
1: So in the Steely Dan case, Steely Dan is the brand name, and if you were a performer, you were just. Plugging into that machine,
0: I think that's right. Mm-hmm.
1: Whereas, if you were in Zappa's band, your name was going to get mentioned just as much as the fact that you were in Zappa, right?
3: Your name's on the album cover. Steely Dan notoriously didn't list the musicians.
0: Yeah, the Frank Zappa band people were an active part of what they were writing. Yeah,
1: I, I really, really like that.
0: I do too. And he took very young musicians. I mean, Bosio was like eighteen or twenty when he joined. Yeah, and I know Steve Vai was eighteen when he joined. He would really take a chance on people that were great, but didn't have a name yet. I don't know if you've ever seen some of the Basio stuff that he did early on. He was a
3: freaking oh, yeah. animal nut. He was a monster. Oh, hilarious. Totally funny to listen to. Yep,
1: he is. So is there anything else you guys wanted to mention about uh, performers before we move on?
0: I think I used it the way you would talk about Ari Tony. Part of the reason I would read the liner notes for the Zappa albums is to pick up names of musicians to follow in other projects.
1: And I think that that's a really great thing. Well, I mean, to mention Arion again, but then like Tobias Sammet's band, Avantasia does something very similar. Exactly. I really like the idea of like, there's this project and then these performers come in and it's like throwing a bunch of chemicals in a jar and then putting a catalyst in and seeing what happens. For me, that's the essence of Prague and I really love seeing that happen. And then seeing like, oh, those two guys had never known each other and now they know each other and they're going to go do another experimental thing. That's awesome. That is the very essence of what we talked about in the What Is Prog episode. I think the other thing you
0: can say about it is there definitely were project phases. There is concept in here as well. Joe's Garage, you can't do that on stage anymore. Mm-hmm. And he would put the band together for that concept, and then that band might split up afterwards. Ah. So it's interesting to me that the Frank Zappa name and the project kind of keeps living, but different people come in and out of it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: There definitely has a flow to who's in the band, and then they move on, and then someone else comes in the band.
3: Yeah, and once the Mothers of Invention were no longer a thing, all of his albums are Frank Zappa.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: He just happens to have, you know, ass-kicking backing bands. That's right.
1: That's really cool. And to use as our pivot point into the next kind of area, I really was interested when you put in our notes, Symphonic Zappa.
0: Yeah, this is an area where I don't think a lot of people realize just how much symphonic music Zappa wrote. Lumpy Gravy is about my earliest Zappa that I really like to listen to. And so there is orchestration way back in, like, late 60s, early 70s, and it moves all the way through. He is actually scoring music specifically for either a smaller orchestra, an ensemble, something like that. Here's an example. This is Strictly Genteel featuring the London Symphony Orchestra.
1: That was a very interesting clip. I love the horn section, and then there was a harp in there. Like, that. It's really, really cool.
0: Yeah. And again, that's Zappa scoring the music. He's doing the arranging and the writing. Another good example is a song called Dupree's Paradise, and this is the ensemble intercontemporane. <laughs> That composition reminds me a little bit more of a, like a Philip Glass style. In the Alex Winter documentary, he makes the argument that Zappa was influenced a lot by Edward Varese, and even though orchestral Zappa goes all the way through his albums, it definitely got heavier towards the end of his career. As he got sick with prostate cancer and he was running low on energy, he really started prioritizing a lot more of the orchestra pieces. And conducting. And one of the big focuses towards the end of his career was the Ensemble Moderne. And again, you can see rehearsals of that group in the Alex Winter documentary.
3: You almost wonder if he kind of had this I got to get as much music out as I can while I still can.
0: Yeah. And then the other reason you hear more symphonic Zappa towards the end of his career is more mainstream musicians were just picking things up. So you would get people that would score and arrange for some of the older rock pieces like Peaches and Regalia and things like that. It's interesting how some of the older pieces got recycled.
3: There is a really interesting nugget that has resonated with me about Frank Zappa. He was so into editing stuff. So many songs on later albums were taken from songs from earlier albums that he recorded live, like a guitar solo. He would just take that and speed it up or slow it down and add it to some other song. And that always blew me away. That was a big part of how he worked, a big part of his process.
1: As we start to get towards the end here, I think we've laid out definitely a case for the artistic brilliance of Frank Zappa and his prolific output. But one thing that's been really interesting to me learning about Frank Zappa is how different his artistic personality was from his, I guess, for lack of a better word, real world personality, his away from the music personality. I've got some ideas and thoughts on that, but I want to hear what you guys have to say as someone who was more contemporary at following him through his career and and seeing some of that in real time.
3: I've thought about that a bunch because I never heard much about Frank as a human being while I was coming up and listening to him. But I have heard stuff more recently that he was a difficult person to work with and things like that. And the way I square that as I think about it is. You think about the CEO of a company, a lot of times they're they're assholes.
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: They want to get the product that they envision. If you're on the bus, then it's good. If you're not on the bus, then maybe not. So I don't have like particular anecdotes and I, you know, don't really want to slam the guy, but it does sound like that if you weren't on the bus, he might not have been the easiest guy to work with.
0: Yeah. I totally agree with that take. It's pretty clear that he was not really an emotional person. Right. He didn't praise his musicians a lot. There's a famous story that Ruth Underwood tells where they were in rehearsals and she just finished playing a pretty killer xylophone line. And then he turned and started talking to some other musicians. He turned and saw her and said, Oh, you're still here? You're still here? Yeah. It just sounds like he was a little low in the empathy quotient. There's another great story where
3: uh, when Moon was like, a young teenager, I want to say fourteen or something. She uh wrote him a little note and slipped it under the door of the studio It said, Hi, my name's Moon. I'm your daughter and I live in the house over here. Wanna spend some time together?
1: Oh, that's heartbreaking.
0: That's actually how Valley Girl came around. Yeah, that's it. That's that's exactly Yeah, it was was literally from her slipping that under his door. Probably not a great dad. Certainly a chain smoker. Like a frickin' chimney. Every time you see him in an interview smoking. Mm-hmm. He was a philanderer. He, even though he was married, he was always hitting on women
3: on the road. And it was at the expense of being a prolific. Yeah. The volume of material that the guy wrote was insane.
1: Yeah. And even I think for Frank politically, you would typically expect an artist like that to be very uh, left of center. I I think that Frank was a little bit more right of center from what I've been able to hear. I'll name names here because it's public. Like, one of my favorite metal bands is Iced Earth, and now we're facing this political fallout from John Schaefer of Iced Earth. Right. Where is that line where you can separate the art from the artist? Can you really separate the art from the artist? So like, if you were one of those people who revere Frank Zappa, then you start hearing these stories about maybe how he treated musicians or his family, does that change your perspective or love of the music?
0: No. I was going to say, it's an easy no for me as well. For me, the music stands on its own. But I think Zappa was a very clear libertarian. Yes. He hated Reagan, but he also didn't put up with a lot of, like, really extreme leftist stuff, too. But he came out and did um, testimony in front of Congress about censorship. Which, by the way, was a democratic thing, not a right-wing thing. Yeah. And he was not an
3: ideologue, you know, and he he didn't have a particular dogma that he was marching to.
1: If I go back to the episode we did on what is Prague and some of the tent poles that we came up with. I want to ask you guys, in all seriousness, where do you think Zappa becomes prog, or is Zappa even really prog? Because for me, we came up with that definition of art rock and performance art, and we likened it to people like David Bowie. And the feel, the context, the structure, the, just the general vibe I get from Zappa's music feels much more akin to the feeling I get listening to Bowie than what I get listening musicianship and structure and all of that out of something like ELP or King Crimson.
0: I think if you want to spend time on the comical Zappa, then it kind of resembles a lot of art rock. I would agree with that. But I think a lot of the rest of the catalog really does fit the tent poles we talked about. Virtuosity, a lot of time signature changes, triplets, tuplets, lengthy non-commercial pieces. And even concept works. I hate putting Frank Zappa in a box.
3: That's a good answer. He plays, he composes, he writes so many different types of songs. He'll do like a, a bluesy titties and beer and then do a beautiful watermelon and Easter hay and then he'll do a symphony. Yes. So some songs absolutely are proggy. And whenever I say prog and Frank Zappa, I immediately think of some of one size fits all which has just some frickin' super awesome progressive jazz. But on that same album is, you know, Evelyn, A Modified Dog, which is just a weird little piano thing that George Duke cranked out. Yep. And then there's Pajama People, and that's just like a bluesy song that's uh, satirical.
1: Awesome. This has been a very enlightening conversation. I thank you guys very much for it. But any closing comments from you, Lee?
0: Incredible musician. I mean, the guy would put out three or four albums in a year, which is more prolific than anybody else. That's just absolutely insane uh, to have a catalog that wide. You know, I'm glad that was my introduction. It led me to a lot of different offshoots in the family tree.
1: Last thoughts from you, Craig?
0: This was
3: a blast just to talk about so many Zappa albums took place at so many unique times of my growing up life. From adolescence through college a little bit of me moving out to colorado just great great music that stands on its own stands the test of time and is unique from really anything else
1: awesome thank you guys very very much okay guys that was a lot Uh, we covered a lot of ground there a lot of different topics (laughs) As we leave, we normally do recommendations about what people should take away from this episode and go explore more. Who wants to jump in here first and give the listeners a recommendation on where to go next?
3: Having listened to a period of Frank Zappa from mid-70s to 90s, my favorite album that I really recommend people listen to is One Size Fits All. It's got a gospel piano song dropped in the middle. It's got just kind of like raunchy, bluesy kind of stuff. And it's got my favorite prog solo of all time, like we talked about. It's just a super album. Every song is great. Every musician is stellar. Every composition is excellent. And I would also recommend Shut Up and Play Your Guitar. There's a bunch of compilations, and it goes back to the whole Frank Zappa loves to take stuff that he plays and edit it and splice it together and do crazy stuff. Those compilations, it's all guitar. And if you're a guitar
0: fan, It's a must listen.
1: Awesome. What about you, Lee?
0: If you're going to go for the comedy, I recommend that you pick up Shake Your Booty or Overnight Sensation or maybe Apostrophe. Any of those is just very heavy on a lot of uh, satirical Zappa. If you're going to get into Virtuoso, I think Craig's One Size Fits All is great. I would have put that on my list. And I would put Jazz from Hell here um, because I think that's a very good album. And then finally, if you want some symphonic Zappa, two recommendations. One is there's a compilation album called Strictly Genteel in addition to the, just the song. And that one has a lot of standard orchestras, so London Symphony, Berlin Symphony. And the last is if you want a little bit more avant-garde symphonic, uh, The Yellow Shark, which has some original compositions. It has some of the older tunes scored for ensemble. And so I think those are two really good albums. And the last one I would throw in there is just if you want to kind of hear Zappa in concept mode, go pick up Joe's Garage, one, two, and three. Oh, yeah. Because uh, the central scrutinizer.
3: It's like a Telefunken U47 with marital aids stuck all over it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'll go in a different direction. I am going to recommend that people that listen to this episode take a cue and go to YouTube and watch Frank Zappa debate people like Tipper Gore about the censorship issue. Especially if you're of a younger generation, these debates are important to understand the context of how we got where we are with labeling and things like that. It's why we have parental advisory stickers on albums. It's why we have the ESRB and video game ratings. It's a lot of where the mind was. If you're an RPG and D&D person like I am, it, Puts into context the satanic panic of the 80s around role-playing games. You can learn a lot about where we are today from seeing what was happening at the time. It's
0: good. Good recommendation. Great idea. I like that. Absolutely.
1: As we exit, don't forget that you can always find us on Twitter at UP3Show, or you can contact us via email at UP3Show at gmail.com. We definitely want to hear from you about what kind of topics you'd like for us to cover here on the show. If you want to show us some support, it's easy. You can support us non-financially by subscribing on Podbean at up3show.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please take a moment wherever it is to leave a review. This helps to make sure that our show pops up whenever other people search for Prague or Prague-related topics. Also, don't forget that you can support us financially if you want to on Ko-Fi at ko-fi.com slash up3show or our new Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash up3show. If you throw us a few nickels, it helps keep the lights on and make sure that all of our episodes stay hosted forever. Thank you guys very much, and we'll talk to you next time.
0: Later. Bye.
1: Hey, folks. Tony here. If you made it this far, congratulations. You're getting everything you can out of this podcast episode. As a reminder, we're a podcast about commentary and opinion on prog music. We use samples of music to make our point and to teach others. We make no claim of copyright to any of the music featured in our samples and strongly recommend that you support the artists we talk about by buying their albums and merchandise or seeing them live. If you're an artist and you'd like for us to change how we've used your content on the show, please contact us directly so that we can work
2: together.